What's up, all of you sad and disappointed people? I'd say welcome back to the All Eyes podcast, but these are sad times for Iowa football after starting the season 0-2. You know, with that said, I'm once again joined by my excellent co-host, Thad Nelson. You know, Thad, how are you feeling today? It's It's been a long week, and uh, after the game, I tried to just step away from it for a moment, but it was it's just hard to get away from, and and much like probably every other Iowa fan, just frustrated. You're excited about the season, and now it's 0-2. And that second half, just there's no way to walk away feeling good after the second half performance. Yeah, you know, it, what a collapse. I mean, 17-0. And I, the unfortunate thing about it is the second that they kicked the field, Iowa kicked the field goal in the first quarter to go up 17-0, a lot of people, you know, they were predicting it. They were predicting, okay, here's – we didn't get the touchdown that's going to come back to bite us. And, you know, it's 17-0 in the first quarter, and people are talking like that. That When that's ingrained into a fan base, you know, there's, there's pessimism in fan bases, but then there's just knowing how things are going to play out and then actually watching it come to fruition is sort of different. It's almost, you know, eerie. They have a history of this against Northwestern. You know, Pat Fitzgerald, I think, is what, six and one against Iowa in one possession games. And there's been three double digit comebacks uh, recently, and they've happened for a variety of reasons. Uh, hasn't always been the same thing, but it's once again, once again, an Iowa offense that is sluggish in the second half. Uh, obviously, turnovers were a big part of that. And it just nothing went right. I mean, I shouldn't say that. The defense had a bad second quarter against the run and played much better in the second half. You can't fault the defense. They got the offense, the ball back twice late. But all things considered, when you can't put points on the board, what do you do? Yeah, and you know, it isn't just like it's Northwestern or these teams that linger around like Purdue. You know, the stat that was really popular on Twitter that was getting thrown around was, you know, Iowa hasn't scored a TD in the second half in five straight Big Ten games. And that's just weird. I mean, there's some good teams in that mix. But at some point, you think that, you know, they're moving, they're going to move the ball down the field and at least find a way to maybe score a touchdown somehow. You know, whether it's, you know, great field position off a turnover or a big play randomly, it, it's, it's just a really weird stat, especially when, you know, you think about all the talented pieces on this offense. As you said, you jump out to that lead, and okay, you think things are looking pretty good, and and the numbers in the first half, you know, wasn't just that they were you know got those turnovers, but they had two other field goal attempts. They they punted once the whole first half, and that was their first possession. And after that, you know, the punt turned into a turnover. You get a touchdown. You get the ball back on on a great defensive play to force a fumble. You get another touchdown. You march the ball right down the field again uh, for third straight possession, and you have a touchdown look, but incomplete to an open guy because of the pressure. You can say whose fault that was. That could go a variety of places. Um, you get that field goal, and as you said, then everybody just like, oh, no, that's going to come back to bite us. And, you know, again, late, late in the half, they get another drive before the clock, which is going to be a two-for-one situation. I was going to get the ball back to start the second half. You think here's a chance and Shudak 
drills it, um, but it just doesn't come back quite far enough. Hits off the upright, no good. And now you lose that. You know, those points would have been pretty helpful. And you lose that opportunity and it just kind of like, all right, here we go again. Yeah. And you know, that was, that was obviously a big moment. Caleb Shudak's kick. And it, it, like you said, he played the win pretty well. It was just kicked a little bit too far. Right. And I mean, he it had the leg. I know the, the broadcast said it was well short, but upon review it, you know, I hit the middle of the upright. So it, it could have gone five yards past, you know, that whatever distance that was and facing the wind too. And when you look at the second half and you think about, you know, the drives that could have resulted in points, there just weren't that many of them. There really just weren't that many of them. And when they were starting to click and the ball was starting to move, it would end up in an interception. And it always seemed like it was high heat that turned into a tip drill. And there was some guy on the back end who wasn't even really supposed to be making a play to end up making a play. As the game went on, Northwestern decided they were going to drop seven or eight guys on a lot of those pass plays. And that's what happens. They're playing zone. They're sitting back. Uh, there's small windows a couple times there's pressure. So you got to release it maybe a little bit before you want, before a guy can get to a clearing. And as you said, the ball's high, it's hot, it gets tipped. And when there's that many defensive backs or that many guys in coverage, there's a chance it's going to bounce to somebody. That's part of why Iowa, you know, the stat they keep showing is leads the nation over the last several years in interceptions. Well, some of those have been that way. Those either tip drills uh, they had one against Purdue, just like that. And they were finding, sometimes they fall harmlessly, and those were finding uh, Northwestern defenders. And as you said, outside of uh, following the interception uh, that Iowa got and looking like they might get, I think they were maybe even in field goal range, to get a go-ahead field goal. Outside of that, the really only other time they got into a good scoring position uh, was on the – second screen pass to Laporta where the block in the back pulled it back. And now all of a sudden you're out of field range again. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think this is probably a good transition point to sort of talk about what we're going to do in today's episode. And it's going to be a lot of focus on the offense and, and uh, Spencer Petrus and, and Brian Ferentz, obviously, but what we're sort of going to do is we're going to go through some tweets that were sent to the Blackheart gold pants, Twitter handle. And, you know, we figured that we could just, you know, go through and respond. And there's a lot of takes flying around out there. There's a lot, there was a lot of heated moment takes. So maybe they've cooled off, but it doesn't really feel like that. Even uh, we're recording this on a Wednesday. It still is pretty up there on Iowa Twitter right now. So um, let's just kick that right off right now. The first tweet that I pulled up, and this is going in really no particular order, but uh, it's from Nate Clocky on Twitter. He says, this all starts with the head coach on down. Iowa hasn't scored a TD in the second half in five straight Big Ten games. Kirk is ultimately responsible and needs to remove Brian from play calling. So this was a big um, topic and a debate topic, and a lot of people are targeting uh, Brian Ferentz's play calling as one of the central issues for the offense sort of underperforming in the first two games. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that um, on the surface? Game one, I have no complaints. Uh, you rack up nearly 200 yards rushing, 460 yards of total offense. That's not an offense problem. Uh, maybe there were some, some little things, but that's not an offense problem. 
Uh, this week, the first half, I, I brought it up just to double check. Here were Petrus's first half numbers. 14 of 25, 147 yards, one touchdown, no interceptions. Nobody's going to complain about that at the first half. I said, you know, some might argue 25 throws is too much. Um, you did have a, a late quarter drive where you are passing more. So I get that maybe, but those numbers are fine. You're not going to complain about those. But what worries me with that is we now have a history, a small history, you date back to Michigan last year, where the offense isn't maybe going as well as you would like, and they just default to throwing it around the field um, when, it's, when it's not working. So from that standpoint, you know, I think Coach Ferentz was right in his postgame. That's not who we are. That's not who we want to be. Uh, that has to change. So there is some issues there that they do need to sort out. And, you know, 50 passes is too much. You could also, again, say their last two possessions, they're up against the clock. So you are obviously going to have some extra throws in there. But there is some things that they need to figure out with their play calling, for sure. You know, and what's interesting is, I'll, and I'll reference this, another tweet that I brought up. It's, a, it's from Gage Reese, and he's saying, enough with the 12 and 22 personnel. So basically what he's saying is enough with the two tight end sets, enough with the two back sets, so like the obvious sort of run personnel sets. And he says, spread the field with wide receivers and see how much easier it is to run the ball with space in the box. Also, enough of the zone run scheme. It, get blo- it gets blown up so often. So here's my take on that. You watched the first game against Purdue when the running game looked incredible, and a lot of it is 12 and 22 personnel. So I don't understand. I just don't see the basis of this. Um, I will say this about the play calling, and this is sort of something that I've, I, I thought could possibly be an issue coming into the year, especially on our first podcast. We talked about this, even our second one, we talked about this, you know, with so many talented weapons in this offense, it almost kind of feels like there's too many cooks in the kitchen. You know, Brian, it just, it just feels like there's a lack of coherency and a lack of, a true identity of what they want to do. And so they default to, okay, on this play, we're going to get Nico regaining running a shallow cross. We're going to get some momentum, have him run after the catch. Or we're going to run him a little hook and just get, you know, a momentum play to start out a drive. Or we're going to get Tyrone Tracy in space. Or we're going to throw it deep to Amir or a quick out to Brandon Smith. It just feels like there's not really like a plan of action or an identity that the offense wants to take on. It almost kind of feels like, all right, so we're going to ride the hot hand or we're just going to throw a bunch of stuff out there that would work out of context and see if it just sticks. And with that, we've, there have been a lot of different personnel packages. So sometimes I wonder with that too, uh, are guys getting into the flow? Are they out of it? And obviously it won't matter for the next game, but through the first two games, we see Amir Smith-Marset come out – after every route or two. Um, now, I think there's probably was a hamstring issue. We saw him grab it in the first game. But are there too many times where guys are in and out, whether it's uh, the, the tight ends, whether it's a couple of the receivers, and they're not able to get that feel of seeing the defense, seeing especially a zone defense. Where are those gaps? How are guys playing me? And is that an issue? And it's a case of, as you said, there are guys worthy of snaps. 
But at some point, do you just have to say, well, here's our so many guys, we're going to ride them. And if you're tired, come out, we'll get you two or three plays off, and then you can get back in rather than this constant substitution package, uh, especially at receiver. I feel like at running back, they've, they've kind of found that groove as far as substitution patterns. But I wonder if that's an issue where guys, especially against that, those zone defenses, are having a tough time getting that continuity of what the defense is doing. Yeah, because unless you're Brandon Smith, where your skill set sort of applies to any snap, you know, you, you can run down the field, you can get underneath, you can stack receivers, you're a big body in the red zone. Even with Sam Laporta, you're probably not going to come off the field because those guys just kind of make everything work. But when you have those sort of one trick, not one trick pony, but a guy with a really great skill set in one area, like a Tyrone Tracy or Nico Regani with underneath route running or Amir Smith Marset with running down the field, you almost get caught in this thing of, well, they're on the field to do this, so we're going to make them do this and not really you know, push it any further. And like you said, it leads to a lot of guys getting a lot of snaps and sort of being taken out, taken in and out. And I just don't think you know, it, you're not going to make everybody happy in this offense. It's just kind of a reality unless you're throwing 50 times a game for 500 yards and four touchdowns. There's going to be guys who get three targets a game, and you have to live with that and just take what is given and sort of, I know that's a, a cliche, but it, it applies. You, you can't, what are the expectations when you have four really great receivers, two great backs and a good receiving weapon at tight end? There's just a lot of players rolling around that. Yeah. Like you said, deserve snaps. And as you mentioned with, with Goodson out of the backfield and even, you know, all three running backs caught a pass on a screenplay or some sort of, uh, out of the backfield play. So you've got those targets to fill out. And I mean, everybody's talked about it. Goodson could get more carries and anybody could have this game, but I do worry about these first two games and it's been brought up both times is late in the game. Goodson disappears from the backfield, whether it's not getting the ball or it's just, he's not getting the carries. And that's a guy that needs to be your workhorse. He's proven you know, he can handle it. And whether that's shortening his snaps maybe early to make sure he's ready for that stretch run. But to me, he's been as balanced and he's shown that he can make plays anywhere on the field. He can make the tough yards in the middle. He can get out wide. That really needs to be your bell cow of your offense, especially late in a close game. Yeah. And Tal Goodson, you look at his skill set and the, what he's done in an Iowa uniform, and it, it doesn't make sense that he wouldn't be on the field. And key situations you know when you look at when Akram Wadley was sort of the guy after LaShawn Daniels graduated he was always there catching screens and doing things out of the backfield he was always on there because he was a playmaker and I feel like Tyler Goodson's a similar a similar player and I will say what's interesting about you know re-watching Iowa's first two games is there's there's some throws that Spencer Peacher struggles with for sure one of the weird ones that really kind of stands out that just looks awkward every single time is, you know, the, the delayed lineman moving out in the space screen. It just feels like every single time it's being challenged and he doesn't have the immediate touch in the short field to sort of put it in a place where the receiver can catch and run at the same time. It almost looks like their running back is, you know, catching, focusing on catching it, then looking to run and not really catching it in stride. It goes 
to me, it's where I see it's his kind of with his footwork. His footwork is great on his uh, three-step, five-step drop in terms of his drop and getting his feet under him. But I feel like on those plays where he's trying to get a deep drop to let the lineman have time to clear, uh, he just looks – it's off balance. He, he's not set. He's kind of backpedaling and flipping the ball. And as you said, it doesn't, doesn't look like it's natural. And I can't tell if that's a lack of feel for that throw. Is it an issue where uh, he doesn't feel like he knows exactly where it needs to put it? And maybe it's just a thing of they haven't repped it that much. Again, he was a backup last year. And yeah, he's been in the system. But when you're the backup, you're not, especially in season, you're not getting a ton of reps on those lives situations and then you take spring away you take a good portion of the fall away and some of those timing things where you're just or those feel throws just look like he's thinking and processing and in conference play for the quarterback you can't be processing in the middle of those plays yeah you know with somebody with Spencer Petrus's skill set and when you look at the offense as a whole with all the weapons like we've already said the run game even the offensive line has looked pretty good for the most part if they were playing a team like Miami of Ohio or Middle Tennessee State or even Iowa State to open the year and just sort of getting a sequence of you know warm-up games or progressively getting harder and then hitting Big Ten play I don't think people are calling for Petrus's job because I think that he's playing well and I don't think they're throwing 50 times a game if in those cases because they're probably averaging seven yards a touch on the ground and they're probably getting all the pass plays that they want and able to take down shots downfield one-on-one and have those looks there. But the fact that he was thrown immediately into a game against, you know, maybe not one of the top teams in the Big Ten in Purdue, but as definitely a team with some players. And, you know, it, and it's Big Ten play, so it's going to be competitive from the, the game outlook standpoint. You know, it's a lot to put on a guy who's making his first career start in his first career season, who was a backup last year and sort of has a lot of kinks that he needs to be working out. Yeah, and as, as you said there, I think the big thing that, that I take away from those situations is he's now had both games, end of the first quarter drives looking for points and has been in put situations where end of the game they're trying to make a drive for points. And he doesn't have a ton of those reps. And again, it's a thing you're not able to practice a ton with those missed times. And, and it doesn't look like he's just quite ready for that. And to me, that's not a fault of him. And if you say, okay, bench him, look, the next guy's going to have even fewer reps, regardless of who you go to. So that doesn't really make any sense when it, in my opinion, Petrus' skill set is too high to justify saying, well, okay, you've had two games, you're done. There's too many, cha- too many times where quarterbacks in the past start off with some of these things. These are not new things for a new starting quarterback to experience. So I think you try to weather them, and throwing it 50 times is probably not the best way to do that. Yeah, and when you look at the throws that sort of got Petrus in trouble, it was always the throws that were going over the middle. And a lot of that, like we talked about earlier, Northwestern was buzzing their linebackers a ton, which just means that they're, you know, throwing out to the, they're cutting out to the flat. 
they're cutting out to those little hook routes and those that they know the slot patterns are like tight end where they line up they were buzzing those a lot they're playing a lot of rubber rubber coverage with their safeties so safeties and a lot of players were just lingering in that box and that created those tighter windows and when your first progression option is sam laporta on a quick in or you know brandon smith on a quick hook right in in that middle zone and you know that spencer petrus kind of he guns it he he has a tendency to just really rip it it's gonna end up you know always sort of being either a contested catch situation or what like we saw a little tip drill that ends up you know finding a northwestern player because there's three players in that little region and with that said, a lot of people went at, like we talked about earlier, um, Brian Ferentz for sort of play calling. And I think to a degree that makes sense to get on him for a lot of these play calls because, like we just said, you know, the, the throws that got him in trouble were what throws over the middle that are quick timing patterns. When he's ripping out routes to Brandon Smith and Amir and to Sam Laporta, sometimes they're high, but they don't get in trouble because they fall out of bounds or he's putting them on their face 15 yards down the field and nobody's even, you know, blinking an eye because like he really just has great footwork and he has an amazing arm. And when he throws those beautiful out routes, it just looks like an NFL level throw. The first half, there were several of them in the rewatch. I posted, uh, I think all of his first half completions. And he, as you said, is ripping out routes. He hit, uh, Tracy on a deep cross. But the one thing that does stand out is off of play action. And again, those routes that take maybe a little bit longer. He's still, when he's trying to read and make maybe those second, third progressions is when he still seems like he's a half beat slow, you know, and you see it sometimes uh, I noticed this game. And then I went back to Purdue on a few of those, he takes an extra beat of the ball with his hand. You see him kind of padded an extra time. And there are great NFL throwers who have done the same thing. But it also stands out when a guy is maybe struggling with that, that it's just taking him an extra, extra bit to get that ball out, giving those defenders an extra chance to get to the pass. Uh, so I think that might be something that, that they might look at, talk at, talk through to get to get those refined to help clean up some of those. Yeah. What's interesting about some of the throws that you're talking about where he sort of, sort of pass the ball or double clutches it. Um, the broadcast has mentioned it quite a bit of times on the double clutching, you know, the actual receivers who are, you know, within the progression zone. So you usually want to have the triangle where you read the first progression, read the second projection, and then your third progression is going to be sort of the base underneath where it's, a, you read it as a triangle and you don't have to look into a different side of the field. When you look at some of the progressions that Spencer Petrus has had to do, it's literally one or two routes that are win routes. Like, he, just, there's no other option. So it's either the receiver's open or you throw it away, and it always just feels like, I don't want to throw it away, but I know it's going to be a forced throw, so he just guns it. And that's happened a few times where it's just, there's no other receivers in the area, no realistic targets. And I do think that falls on play calling. I think that with every successful play call, unless you're um, sort of incorporating some real misdirection, there should be three progressions to go through. And we saw it early in the game um, against um, Northwestern. Spencer Petrus was making progressions in the pocket. Quite a, and, and this has been a knock on him that I think is totally misguided. 
people think that he doesn't make progressions. That's what a lot of people are saying. And I think that's what people say when a quarterback just struggles in general. But he is making progressions, and he's making right progressions. You know, I think you were saying, I want to I say it was to either Amir or Tyron Tracy on a deep cross early in the game. He came off of the underneath and went, went low to high the way you're supposed to do it, and he just ripped it right down the middle, and it was a ball right on the money. You know, he makes those kind of throws. He makes good reads at times. It just feels like when the game starts moving too fast, it's moving too fast. The intricate points of, you know, where experience comes in, he is definitely lacking in those areas. And a lot of that is just, as you said, he's making the reads. He's seeing them. But I don't know if he's trusting them yet with his throw. And that's hard for me to say. Again, we're just watching. We're not able to talk to him about those or really know. But just when you see kind of the actions that are happening, he's making the reads. You see his eyes. You see him come off. But sometimes he's having to move, as you mentioned, way off his first read to find the next one. And that's a really hard thing for any quarterback to do. Watch NFL games. There's not a lot of NFL guys that are scanning, say, left, and then all of a sudden bringing it all the way across to the right to find a guy. I mean, that's just not a realistic thing. So with that, you can design plays to give him maybe a few more progressions that are nearby or the other option is you just kind of stick to those and you have a quick outlet like you might see in some of the spread schemes where they're making one read downfield not there okay quick swing out to a receiver or a running back who's just kind of out in the flat I absolutely agree there always should be an outlet on every single play whether it's you know for an alert whether, you know, something, uh, a covered shift is happening post-snap that you just need to get out of the play because you just, it's danger zone, outlet. And it doesn't feel like there's enough outlets. And when, when Nate Stanley was running the offense, and Akram Wadley, again, we'll, I'll reference back to him. When Akram Wadley was part of the offense, there was, it always felt like he was an outlet. And he actually made some really big plays as an outlet guy. One that comes to mind was against... Um, uh, Penn State uh, he, he a lot of times he was just the late delayed you know leak out after a green dog blitz sort of came through and he would make the decision to sort of bump and just get out into space and he would make plays and Tyler Goodson can I think can fit that role pretty well um, but yeah it, it just becomes a thing where I think you need to do as much as you can to help Spencer Peters especially right now because I, I guarantee you he feels a little bit guilty about what's going on. There's just no way, you know, when you're throwing the ball 50 times in the game and you're losing and you're throwing game deciding level picks, it's hard as a young player, not to think that, you know, that's on you. And I, and realistically from an objective standpoint, it is on him to an extent, you know, he is the one that made those throws and he is the one that's sort of gunning it and not placing the ball overly well. And I think that's, what a lot of people are noticing, and I think being overly harsh on, um, you know, another tweet that we got was from Lewis Palin, who says, you know, Petrus has no touch, poor footwork and decision-making, and is simply not the point where he needs to be for the Hawks to win. Um, he also says, we had guys open with time to hit. Um, we had guys open with time to hit. The ball was often thrown to the wrong receiver, thrown away or poorly thrown. I saw a failure in execution. 
and they start starts to talk about Stanley worked out with a QB guru for combine prep. He was never shown fundamental throwing mechanics at Iowa. We need a better QB coach. Okay. So <laughs> a lot going on there. And let's just shut this down real quick. Stanley had great mechanics. That was never the issue. And I think from a pocket standpoint, Spencer Peters has pretty solid mechanics. Um, he never gets narrow with his base. Um, his drops look beautiful. That happy feet, I've, I've seen it called happy feet where he's sort of bouncing in the pocket. That is what you want a quarterback to do when he's going through progressions. You don't want him to just stick his feet in the mud and just be a cinder block there. Um, so these, I think these are technical flaws in the pocket are overblown. Um, but I will say the one thing that was said that I believe we would both agree on is Spencer Petrus has really shown a lack of touch. Okay. You don't need to throw the ball a hundred miles per hour every single time you drop back and throw it. There are times when he's going to need that arm. When he said, when you're ripping those out routes on some of those deep passes, where you got to chuck it up in the air and let a guy go get it. So I don't know if that's a little bit of, you know, is that nerves? Is that uh, just the lack of feel? But I also think part of it is there's not a lot of wide window throws or, or even easy throws. Some of those hitches are still not wide open and not that you're going to get wide open throws. You know, this is Big Ten conference football. Guys are going to be covered, especially you go against Northwestern and a Pat Fitzgerald defense. They are going to be disciplined. They're going to make the right reads. They're going to do what they're supposed to do. So how do you find those? And there are times where he shows he's able. I don't believe it's an ability issue, but it is right now a feel issue of when to cut loose when to guide a person. And I think it's the, that's where the issue is. I noticed twice uh, when the replay would show the uh, end zone cam. And there were two times, once to Brandon Smith and once to Sam Laporta, where it looked like the receiver on both cases comes out of their break and they're going to settle a little bit in the zone. And the ball is high and wide um, of the target. And part of that is it, it looks like Petrus is expecting them to continue and the receiver's reading it differently. And as much as zone as Northwestern was playing, it looked on those angles that the receiver was probably making the right read. And then the ball is going to sail. When you do throw it in front of a person, it is going to sail. It's going to look even higher because the guy's reaching out in front for it. So I do think there's some of that where it's, being on the same page with the receiver and Petrus making sure he knows what's going on. Where does this ball have to go when they come out of the break? Absolutely agree. And, you know, when I, when I watch Spencer Petrus play, this might fly over the heads of a lot of people, but um, especially if you don't really watch football outside of Iowa football, but there's a player a few years back um, who played at Georgia named Jacob Eason. And, his issue, he had the, one of the best arms you'll ever see. He could rip every single throw with great velocity. And he, he was a big-framed guy, and he had great footwork and able athleticism. And eventually, he, you know, he was this five-star guy. Eventually, he got the boot from Georgia 
in favor of Jake Fromm, who literally had none of those same qualities as an arm, but he had great touch. He had good pocket awareness, and he had good enough placement where he wasn't turning the ball over at a high frequency. And I think it also goes to a point of how many great quarterbacks do you know at the NFL or college level where they're just constantly ripping fastballs and they have this laser arm? There's just not that many. There really isn't. I mean, you think of Ryan Mallett as the big one because he had a gun, but he had no touch. Um, that's another big one. Um, obviously, I just said Jacob Eason. He's on the Colts as a backup right now. He had a better stint at Washington for sure. But again, it's you need to have the touch element to your game. And yeah, you can make throws that nobody else can make, but you got to make the throws that lesser players can make as well. We saw through the first two games, the first two quarterbacks for Purdue and Northwestern do not have the ability to make the throws that Petrus can make. They don't. But they threw, especially on third down, you know, put the ball in the right spot to a guy. And especially in those big situations, both games, uh, there were times where Iowa gave up consecutive long possessions defensively that had multiple third down and even fourth down conversions. And all those times, the quarterback on third down made, didn't rip one in there, but found the guy and put the touch on it and put the ball in the right spot. And that is where Petrus has to take his next step. And part of that is decision-making. And part of it is just getting that feel of where the ball needs to go and situational awareness of, I just have to give my guy a chance, you know, especially with somebody like a tight ends like Laporta or receivers like Brandon Smith, where they have the body size and body control to shield from the defender and just go make a play. Just put it in their window. Don't make it too hot and just give them a chance. Yeah. And you know, with quarterbacks who have really strong arms, what you'll see is a lot of times when the, a throw is errant or it just looks like, you know, it's off the mark. A lot of times it seems like the quarterback with a strong arm is trying to overcompensate for a lack of anticipation. And he's trying to gun it in late and just get it on time. But with Spencer Petrus, it, I, I think he has pretty good anticipation. You know, you can gauge anticipation by when he hits his back step on his drop, you know, is the ball coming out to the first regression? If it's not, then it's coming on the second hitch. Once he plants his foot on the second hitch, it's really easy to um, gauge timing. Um, because all those hitches are in correlation with a route down the field. Um, the first progression should be open off the back step. And a lot of these routes are open, and he's getting the ball out when he should get the ball out. I just think that he needs to sort of relax, um, just focus on making the throw, and just knowing that you don't have to gun it in there. And every single play doesn't need to be, you know, an opportunity for nine yards after the catch. Sometimes you just need to put it on a guy. You know, you don't need to keep leading a guy constantly down the field. Um, and I think that's what's sort of getting him in, in trouble, especially early on in his career. And learning where, if you're going to miss, where do you miss? I know, especially on Twitter, a lot of Iowa fans complain about deep overthrows. Well, the truth is, if you're going to miss on a deep throw, that's where you miss. That's the right miss. On those over-the-middle passes, you cannot miss high and wide. If you're going to miss the body, it's got to be low and to the offensive player's side. 
So if they, if anything, they get low, they get to the ground and then they pick it up, but you don't allow a defender to go through their body or it's not going to get tipped up most likely for a chance at an interception. So part of that is too, you know, maybe you're trying to rip it in there. So a guy can, as you said, make a play after the catch, but sometimes just put it in its spot. You know, it's like a, an O2 curveball, bury it, you know, and if, if you make, make the play, if he catches it or the guy swings, great. But if not, okay, we're, we're right back in it. No harm done. You're, you're right back to the next play. And that's a spot where uh, I think experience will help. And as you said earlier, guys with powerful arms, they just think they can make that play. But watching the NFL last year, in Jameis Winston, big guy, big, powerful arm, and he's sticking the ball where it doesn't need to be. And I don't think Petrus is careless with the ball. I don't mean it that way. But he also needs to understand where that miss has to be if you're going to miss. Yeah, and I like what you said there about Petrus not necessarily being careless. I, don't, I think he's making the right throws most of the time. And a lot of throws that kind of look like it's confusing where he, he's actually being targeted or where he's targeting the ball to go to, a lot of times it's just sort of almost scramble drill or option routes or slight patterns where they're just not on the same page based on where the receiver's making their read compared to the quarterback making their read. Uh, I noticed that on a seam route to Nico Regani. Um, there's been a couple times with Amir as well. Um, but those aren't really, you know, plays that he's being careless or just totally off the mark. Those are just communication things and sort of seeing the game differently. Um, the plays that he's gotten in trouble with on those picks, he's making the right read in the right progression. There's throws to be made there. It's just, like you said, the placement. Uh, you got to throw those kind of balls that are sort of in a crowded window down and away, or at least put it on the lower half of the body. Let the receiver go down and sink down to it so it's not ending up in a tip drill kind of situation. And while we we're going over that, I, I looked up. So here were uh, Nate Stanley's numbers against Northwestern last year. So Iowa won 20 to zero. Northwestern was pretty inept on offense, but Stanley was 12 of 26, 179 yards, one touchdown, no interceptions. So the big thing there, no interceptions. If I was in that situation this time, it's probably a win, but the percentage is low, worse. And yeah, yards per pass are higher, but you know, it's not like he had a big passing day. But offensively, they ran it 35 times for 131 yards, and uh, the run, at least the running backs, and, and got a, a touchdown run out of that. So this is a little bit systemic against Northwestern. It's not the first time this has happened. And Petrus is not the first Iowa quarterback to have an inaccurate day. Uh, so this idea that he's the worst, you know, pull, you got to pull him. The season is lost. Uh, I can guarantee you there's nobody in that building that thinks the season is lost. There's nobody who's like, well, let's just build for the future. It's not like you have a grad transfer senior at quarterback. You have a redshirt sophomore who has the opportunity to be a really good player and who all summer we've heard great things about. So it's not time to pull the panic button, but it is time to evaluate you know, what's he doing? Where are his faults? Where are his positives? Put him in better situations, number one. And then he has to fix some of those errors as well. 
I, I love that because I think Iowa football, the Iowa football Twitter is sort of in panic mode right now where they want everybody fired. They want Spencer Petras benched. Um, for a true freshman, mind you, it, it was one of the polls a lot of people wanted to do token. So I, I'll say this, it's way too early to pull the pan, like, you know, pull them out. Um, Spencer Petrus, we get it. Like, I, I think a lot of people are sort of tired of hearing about his amazing arm and all these kinds of things because now it's sort of crunch time and games are happening and games are mattering. And it's not, you know, an optimistic kind of projection anymore. It's really just happening. And I agree that right now it's time to sort of evaluate. You, you can pick apart in two games sort of where he's struggling, where he needs to improve, and you just need to watch it sort of play out now with full games to look back on. If if Iowa ends up pulling him after three starts or four starts and he ends up, you know, it could be a waste. It just seems like it could be wasted potential in my opinion. Totally agree. And, you know, you've got with an only conference slate, you know, each of these games matters. And, and we see with the cancellation now of Purdue's next game, you know, anything could happen this season. You know, Iowa could go and win – could rattle off five straight wins, you know, whatever, and be right back in the mix of everything, especially if teams are missing players, if teams are missing games. It's definitely not time to pull pull the panic or push the panic button or any of that. You know, we've there's been enough positives where you just have to keep marching forward. And I know people sometimes don't like that, but that's the truth. And especially if you're on a team, there's not time to like blow it up. You know, they simply don't have enough time during the week, during anything to do that. So you have to keep marching forward. You have to keep working on what things can we improve, you know, learn from those mistakes, which I think he will and, and figure out your, your best path forward. Yeah. And, you know, I think that we probably spent at least enough time in the offense this week. Um, we could talk about the O-line, but we we want to make it sort of a listenable show and not just a long, uh, drawn-out rant. So let's give a little bit of focus to the defense now. Um, over, overall, they had a great day, I think. Um, you know, they, they did what they needed to do for Iowa to win the game, in my opinion, um, especially Davion Nixon, who, like we talked about last week, absolute star. I mean, that guy just does it all. He seems like he's the best player on this team, period, let alone on the defense. Um, but we also saw um, new faces at linebacker with Seth Benson. And, you know, 13 tackles. Uh, he had a couple tackles for loss. He was definitely all over the field. You know, what are your sort of thoughts on how the defense performed on Saturday? You have to start with Davion Nixon. Another just top-level performance. But to his side, we saw Jack Heflin look like the player that we kind of expected. We had a message during the game. He was just standing dudes up at the line, whether it's a sink, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, a double team. He was just standing dudes up, making a wall, and then sometimes going and finishing the plays. Uh, I thought he was incredible as well. You know, he gets overshadowed. And in that position where the spot he's playing – he is going to eat up double teams. So he's not going to put up the same sort of numbers, but very effective was a big part of why the defense was really good in the second half. I thought Chauncey Goldson played well again. 
um, you know, had another, I think he had half of a sack. He continues to be really good against the run. Northwestern was not running the ball to his side of the field. And Iowa did move him around a couple times, but they were really ineffective to his side of the field. They had one good run, but it was because of a cutback the other way. And on the other side, Finn Valkenberg made a big play. That Joe Evans had some good reps. Uh, Wagner got in there a little bit. Uh, Noah Shannon, when he's in there, he's an explosive defensive tackle uh, as well. So I, I thought from the line especially, saw a lot of good things. Benson really stood out in the run game. I thought he was really good. Game one, uh, I thought both Neiman and Wade got caught up in the wash sometimes. And Benson knifes through there a little bit better. I feel like he has a better read of that. And part of it is he's probably been practicing that middle linebacker spot for two years. Like that's where he's slated. So you don't have quite as much movement from the other guys. Neiman looked a little bit more comfortable at, at will. Um, and Iowa went to its, its cash package more where Merriweather was at safety. They brought, uh, you know, so then all of a sudden they're bringing Belton down closer to the line of scrimmage where he seems more comfortable. And I thought that played out pretty well for them. Uh, fewer snaps for Julius Brent. I know some people weren't, you know, happy with Moss, but he gave up a couple third down plays, but I thought he was pretty good for the most part as well. Yeah, it does kind of feel like that back end isn't – you just really don't have an opinion on them. They're kind of just doing adequate enough where they're not getting the load of the criticism, but you're not saying that they're changing the game for the better, which is different because Iowa in the past has had a lot of guys in the back end that are making plays, whether it's Amani Hooker, Geno Smith, Desmond King, you know, even Michael Ujimudia with the pass breakups. You have guys like that who are always constantly making plays and they're notable plays because they're on the screen. The tough part about defensive back evaluation when you don't have the all 22 and you just are working off the broadcast angle is you don't really give credit to the guys, uh, full credit to the people that are actually making the plays when the ball's not thrown to them. I think that's a big thing. So, you know, I want to say that Matt Hankins is doing pretty well. I want to say that Riley Moss is actually doing better than what I thought he would. Um, but you only really see them when the ball's targeted to them and they're either giving up a catch, they're missing a tackle, or, you know, getting a pass breakup. Those are the only really times you can kind of spotlight their entire direction and play. Um, when you look at linebacker, like you said, I thought week one, Nick Neiman and Barrington Wade sort of got caught up in the wash quite a bit. And I thought Seth Benson was a refreshing change because it just kind of felt like the run fits were a little bit more clean um, against Northwestern. I, I'm, I'm saying, though, I would love to see just more of Justin Jacobs. I thought every single snap he played against Purdue was just so clean and he looked so explosive and he was making the right breaks and the right um, reads. And he just looks like a complete game changer, a linebacker that Iowa hasn't really had in quite a while with his specific style. Um, and, and against Northwestern, he was – I don't think he got a snap. I don't, I don't remember seeing him on the field. So that becomes a thing of, you know, will they look at that in the future? It'll be interesting to see. I know that we talked about it in week one, after week one against Purdue, but Phil Parker has been unloading blitzes this, off, or this season. And against Northwestern, it was really no different. And a lot of that was coming from the nickel. Some of that was coming from the linebacker spot. 
So I think that more athleticism and guys that can get home quicker sort of aid into that approach if you want to do that, which would fit uh, Justin Jacobs. Part of me wonders then in an ideal world, if Phil Parker would have him in there, you know, maybe slide Neiman to the Leo spot where he played as a sophomore. And I just have a feeling that's where they'd prefer him uh, some of the time because he's probably at this point, one of their best uh, pass coverage linebackers. And then in the middle, you would have, you know, Benson, hopefully Jack Campbell can be back soon. I'm still looking forward to see him play because he has all the physical tools, had some shining spots as a true freshman. But, you know, then if Benson and, and Jacobs are in there, I do think you have your best run fit linebackers in there. Uh, both of those just seem to have a knack of reading it, getting through the wash, and then exploding, where Wade and Neiman looked like they were just kind of trying to get through, as we've said a couple times, get through the wash, and they're seeing and reacting. And those linebackers have to see and be reacting at the same time, and then just go make a play. You don't have a, a chance to, to diagnose it for long. Just go make a play. Absolutely agree. And, you know, there's a lot of encouraging things, especially up in the front seven for Iowa. I guess it's sort of more like a, a front six or a front five or whatever you want to call it. But um, like, like you said earlier about Jack Heflin, I kind of want to spotlight him too. He was, we, were, we were tweeting each other during the game or we were DMing each other. Jack Heflin looked incredible. Anytime they tried to run to his side, you know, good luck. That dude ate up two guys at once. He would fight off a left guard while tackling the running back simultaneously. You just can't move him. And he's exactly what Iowa thought they were going to be getting. And it's just kind of unfortunate that, you know, everything is working in that kind of unit uh, for the first two weeks. And then Iowa's 0-2. It just felt like if Iowa could sure up that interior penetration and hold that front, you know, they would be putting themselves in wing, winning, winning positions in games. And they have been. Um, you know, it's just kind of an unfortunate thing during this season that it really feels like Iowa has improved in the, against the run.
Give me Davion Nixon lining up everywhere. I want him. At, I want him at linebacker. I want him at edge rusher. I want him at Leo. I want him at three tech everywhere. That dude, I swear, he's so athletic. He's so long. He's so explosive. He's, he's so powerful. He has great hands. I think you can line him up anywhere in the college game and he will dominate the way he's been dominating. Um, and like you said, if Austin Schulte comes back and he's improved on even last season, and you can sort of have him as a, a um, interior run stopper or alongside Jack Eflin where they're plugging up a lot of holes. And then you have guys like Seth Benson or even Justin Jacobs, you know, making good run fits. I I'm that's a different dynamic that Iowa hasn't seen on defense for quite some time, even with AJ Vanessa in there, because it seemed like a lot of times last year, they were losing the run fits on the interior defensive line. And I'm all for it. I'm all for it. I think you should put your best players in positions to make plays at all times, whether it's offense or defense. Absolutely. I, I think that when you have explosion on both ends, you know, you need to rely on sort of linebackers to sort of fill the void when they do pin their ears back and, you know, the ball gets run to their side because sometimes they're going to lose their gap integrity. But when you watch Davion Nixon play, we talked about last week, he has like jump steps as a defensive tackle where he just gets a car across a lineman's face in a blink and you know, if he does somehow run himself out of a run lane, I think he's aware enough to cut back and at least cut that off. And Chauncey Golston's lengthy enough to do the same thing. So I think you just need to put your athletes on the edge and just sort of let them get the pass rush snap for snap and then sort of live with the, the chinks in the armor sometimes when it's run outside and hope that, you know, who, whoever's playing, you know, slot corner or, you know, line up at will can sort of fill those outside alleys or even Jack Kerner, if you're talking about, you know, a certain side of the field. You know, when you mentioned safety, I, one thing that I wanted to ask you with this and have been thinking about as we go to the back end is what was your take on sliding Merriweather into safety and bring Dalton closer to the line of scrimmage? I thought they both looked comfortable in those roles, but was there anything you saw that stood out with that? You know, so with Belton in the first game against uh, Purdue, there were some tackles in space, especially on the edge, where he just kind of looked like he was trying to go for the ankle tackle. And he's definitely a thinner frame guy that I don't really feel comfortable with him sort of playing up near the line of scrimmage like that. I almost feel like it should be switched, where Kayvon Merriweather should probably be lingering around there because he had a stick on, on Isaiah Bowser on the, near the goal line against Northwestern that everybody got Twitter really excited because he just came down and laid the boom. And he's definitely an explosive guy. I think that 
he's almost sort of like the prototypical cash kind of guy. And I do think that's probably a role that he should be slotting in, but it becomes a point where, you know, are you the best fit for that spot or you, or is the team sort of just needing a guy that can fill a role? Because, you know, like we said, Davion Nixon could be a great defensive end, but you need interior pressure. And so maybe that's one of the reasons he's there. He's also a big guy. So that's also probably a big reason, but it just seems like Iowa sort of gets in this position where, well, yeah, you could be better at a different position, but we don't have anybody else that can sort of match that skill level at the position that you're currently playing. Yeah, it's not, you know, you're not Ohio State, you're not Alabama, where you're going to have, okay, we're going to throw you here because guy number two, there isn't going to be very much of a gap. So we can really bring out your best. And I think that is true with that. And, and I saw some of those same things. I do think when I watched and rewatched with Merriweather, one thing that stood out was that outside of that play, he didn't stand out. And to me, that's a good thing for a safety. You know, if you're seeing the safety everywhere, there are times when that's okay, but that means they're having to cover up for somebody else. They're not the primary guy that should be making all those plays. So to me, that was a good thing, both for the defense and for him. I wasn't like, oh, there he was again, or, oh, he had to make a tackle out wide. So him not standing out a lot outside of that hit, to me, was a good thing. You know, and this is another area where I wish we had the All-22 to rewatch it because, you know, I would, I'm so curious on what he was doing on the back end. What were his responsibilities? Because like you said, we didn't really see him a whole lot, but when we did, you know, he was in right, he was in the right position. He wasn't getting burned. He wasn't giving up big plays and he was always around the ball when he should be around the ball. So it'd be really cool to see what his usage was. You know, was he running a lot of cloud coverage? Was he sort of the back end guy? Was he able to make these open field reads to, you know, the field side of the play? where he's given a lot of responsibility against bunch sets and, and three-by-ones and two-by-twos. It would be really nice to see that because I think that he's a good enough athlete to sort of be given that responsibility. But in terms of what we were able to see, I didn't really form a great opinion on him based on what we were actually seeing snap-by-snap snap on him. I'm with you. And as you said, he has athleticism. I know there was uh, the video, I think, of a, a dunk of his – I don't remember if it was from high school or, or from something else, but that guy's explosive and he is quick. So those are things if you want to make game changing plays that are going to help the defense. Yeah. And I think, you know, transitioning out of talking about or recapping, you know, another loss against Northwestern. We do, there is another game this Saturday, uh, Michigan state. They're coming off a big win against Michigan. They're breaking in a new coach in Mel Tucker. Um, it was a game against Michigan where they never really trailed. They had kind of control of the entire game from start to finish. Uh, Michigan State's also, also a team that it just kind of another one of those teams that just seemingly lingers around no matter how good they are in a year. And obviously, you know, Big Ten championship nightmares. So, you know, what are your initial thoughts on uh, Michigan State as we kind of quickly wrap this up? Well, new coaching staff uh, coming in. And we do see uh, Rocky Lombardi, who was an Iowa recruit, you know, and he's thrown for over 300 yards, three touchdowns, both of their games. And they haven't been able offensively to run the ball very well in either of those two games, but they're slinging it around the field. And against Michigan, 
they just threw deep over and over again. I think they had 13 attempts of over 20 yards down the field in that game. And part of that is Michigan is notorious. They're going to press coverage. They're going to go single high or zero coverage on the back end, and they're going to challenge you. And their receivers stand out. Uh, that was the big thing when watching them is they have playmakers on that, on that side and out wide. And, you know, they didn't run the ball very well, as I said, but they're making plays um, from several guys. So that's the big thing that when I watch them is they've got three guys, especially at receiver, uh, Ricky White, Jalen Naylor, and Jaden Reed, who are big play threats every time uh, they get the ball. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Ricky White, and he's the kind of the guy that went off for almost 200 yards in that game. Might even been 200 yards, if I'm remembering right. But he was just kind of the guy that was a recipient of a lot of these deep balls that Rocky was throwing up there. And he's a, he was kind of the unheralded um, receiver out of those three that you just named. He was kind of the guy that nobody really knew what to expect because I believe he's a true freshman or at least a redshirt freshman. And this was in his first game of his career. He only had like one catch for five yards. And then he goes off and came two for almost 200 yards. And when you rewatch him against Michigan, you know, he's definitely not the quickest guy. He's definitely not the straight line fastest guy, but he has really great feet. And it kind of almost reminded me the way he was making some contested catches and sitting in zone. It almost felt like David Bell. And so it makes me wonder, you know, this time around, if he starts cooking early, is Phil Parker going to, you know, implement some of that press and sort of get them off rhythm at the line of scrimmage rather than just sit back in like an uncontested zone and let them get the underneath stuff? They're going to see a totally different defensive style from Iowa than they saw against Michigan. So I would be shocked if, you know, not just 13, but if there's more than five or six deep throws uh, for them this game, I would be surprised. But that said, those guys can make plays with the ball in their hands. So Iowa's defensive backs are going to have to be really sure tackling. And they're going to have to close up some of those windows for Lombardi to make those throws. Um, because there are times where his accuracy isn't great, but he was great on some of those deep passes, putting it in the right spot, letting the guy go make the play. And the receivers made the play. So I'm interested, will Iowa make them – dink and dunk will they make them try to avoid those chunk yards because I'm not sure if they're right now at this point um, ready to make those long drives you know those 12 play drives so I think I was going to sit back and kind of see that and try to make them one-dimensional because they have struggled to run the ball but I think they're capable and Lombardi can scramble I don't think that's what he wants to do every time, but he's definitely a willing runner and he's a physical kid, you know, was a state wrestler, you know, he'll stick his nose in there, but I think Iowa's goal is going to be corral that build a wall on the back end and then come up and you got to make tackles right away. Don't let them get a bunch of yards after those catches. Yeah. And you mentioned how, you know, they haven't ran the ball well, but they have a good running backs and, um, Connor Hayward, who's sort of the guy that stands out the most to me um, just over the years watching him play, he is very similar to a, a Zane Horvath or a um, Isaiah Bowser, who we've already seen uh, in back-to-back weeks, sort of a guy who 
has marginal explosiveness, but is just a load to tackle. I mean, he's about 230 pounds, six foot tall. So he's got, you know, you can kind of picture that physique when you look at those kind of measurables and you're going to have to make tackles against him. And especially on the edge, because they like to run a lot of outside zone and it'll just be interesting to watch, you know, how Iowa does tackling, especially on the outside with their, you know, nickel backs and, um, Dane Belton, if he's being close to the line, will he be able to make those tackles? Matt Hankins is going to need to fill down. There's certain aspects that it's going to be interesting to watch, especially against the running game, because if it's anything like Zane Horvath against Iowa, you know, it could be a long day of, you know, seven yards per carry every time it goes outside. And it's similar to Purdue in that there are going to be three good receivers on that team. And whether they're out there at all times or not, but I think I was probably going to have to play a lot of cash or nickel. So he might be out wide with a defensive back who needs to make a good tackle. And, and that's been, I mean, if you're tackling a guy who's 230 pounds, that's going to be difficult. So will Iowa then try to go to more of a four, three to protect against that. And, but then you're going to put your linebackers in really tough situations against those receivers you know, if they're trying to cover them for any more than two seconds downfield. Yeah. And when you also look at this Michigan state Spartans defense, transitioning to the defense, um, it's going to be really interesting to see what Iowa's game plan on offense is going to be right at the gate, because the way that Michigan state structured structured on defense, they want to take away the run game. So if this is like Northwestern again, and Spencer Peters is throwing 50 times, which, I don't think is going to be the case, especially after last week, but it does kind of seem like a similar formula that it would lead to a lot of passing, um, especially if you want to beat this team because they are susceptible on the back end. And so it's kind of interesting to watch this dynamic play out when we just saw Spencer Peters throw it, you know, back-to-back weeks about 50 times a game and it wasn't overly successful. Do they just kind of keep forcing the run? You know, are we going to see different kinds of passing concepts? I, I'm very intrigued to see how Iowa comes out in this game for sure. I thought maybe last week you would see some of those like receiver tunnel screens or those quick check out of a run and just get it out on a two-man uh, two set and hit the slot on a quick pass. We're not seeing a lot of that so far, and maybe those were um, – calls that Stanley was making at the line, especially those quick passes. But I wouldn't be surprised if early maybe Iowa tries to get Petrus some easier throws against that defense. But as you said, that's a defense that's designed, they want to stop the run. Michigan threw it 51 times last week in, in a similar game that it was close the whole way. And they're out there throwing it everywhere. And so does Iowa try to follow that? Didn't work for Michigan. Um, or are they going to commit to the run? And I still believe in this line. I'm interested to see. Uh, last week, Coy Cronk came out. Coach Ferentz said afterwards that he's still dealing with some things coming back from his injury. And he did not look nearly as good in this game as he did the Purdue game. Um, just his footing was bad. And I know it's an ankle injury from before. And so Kallenberger will be in there. I would assume if that ankle injury still still lingering and maybe there's a chance to to go hammer them and maybe it's out of uh you know 
11 personnel. Maybe it's shotgun. You spread them out and don't let those linebackers live in the box all day. Yeah, especially when their their best linebacker, the most notable linebacker is Antoine Simmons. And he's sort of a guy that has adopted this new age linebacker role where he sometimes is going to end up in the slot. And they really trust him against slot receivers. They trust him against tight ends that split out. It It's definitely a team that you can manipulate based on your personnel set. So if you're going to line up with two inline tight ends or two backs, you're going to get a crowded box. And you're that's basically daring saying, you know, our offensive line, our run scheme is going to beat you. Um, I think that Iowa needs to rely on more misdirection in this game. So I wouldn't be surprised if you do see some end rounds with maybe Tyrone Tracy, maybe even Sam Laporta. I know that they like to run those tight end jet motion kind of actions. Um, even Nico Reganey. Um, but you need to sort of get the linebackers out of just, you know, keying the, the guard or the fullback and just unloading against the run. Because if you let them do that, they're going to do that and they're going to do it effectively, you know, no matter what. So I, I think there needs, going, there needs to be a different kind of approach to this game than what like, we saw from Michigan and what we've seen the first two weeks against Purdue and Northwestern. I'm expecting to see less two tight end sets. Um, maybe they get in there and run some 20, you know, 21 personnel with Potabom, who was so good in that first game and let him take on those linebackers. Um, that's definitely an option, but I think if you can get, you know, two or three wide receiver sets, get a linebacker slid out, maybe get another safety dropping back, lower that box, manipulate that box, you know, manipulate it with motions and things like that. I think that's going to be a really good option. I did like that we're seeing more, uh, especially out of a shotgun, putting two backs in the backfield and then motioning one pre-snap. And I think that can be helpful because again, it's, either getting a linebacker out of the box or holding their eyes. And just that split second of hesitation can be the difference between a one-yard gain and a four-yard gain. And those matter. In, in a game like this, Iowa-Michigan State is going to be a battle at the line of scrimmage. So every time you can get four instead of one, you're going to take that and it's going to totally change what you can do offensively. Yeah, and as we move sort of towards a prediction, which we have really struggled with because we're both 0-2, and we both predicted some semi-blowouts of both two games, which haven't really gone our way. So we're, we're apologizing to all of you for potentially getting you to unload money on Iowa in those two. Um, but like you said, Michigan State and Iowa is always sort of a, a battle of the line of scrimmage. And – Unlike against Purdue and unlike against Northwestern, the susceptibility against Michigan State's defense, I just don't see the same, you know, um, glaring susceptibility as those two teams, at least initially on paper. And so I do think this is a game where there's probably going to be a lot of lead changes, but there's not going to be high scoring. So there's probably going to be three field goals per team, and there's probably going to only be two touchdowns uh, per team on offense. And it's going to be one of those 17-21 games, and it might be boring. And I, I think that Iowa is probably due for a win. I, <laughs> maybe I'm just awful luck, and I should pick Michigan State at this point. I mean, yeah, but the spread is six and a half. I would take Michigan State on that. I don't think that Iowa by a touchdown sort of makes sense to me. 
Um, but I do think that Iowa finds a way to win this game uh, just based on, you know, trial and error through the first two weeks of that offense and sort of getting things flowing coherently. And, you know, week one, it was penalties and it was two big t- fumbles that sort of cost Iowa the game. Last week, it was interceptions. So I, I think the turnovers are uncharacteristic. I think penalties are uncharacteristic of Iowa's offense. And I think they sort of iron that out and sort of regress back to the mean or excel back to the mean rather um, this week. I'm with you on all of that. One thing, you know, it's not a Michigan state defense that is creating a lot of turnovers. So that should help, but it's an offense that had, I believe seven turnovers against Rutgers and then didn't turn it at all over at all against Michigan. So I think they're probably a team, especially under a new staff, that's probably somewhere in the middle. Iowa needs to win that turnover battle. Uh, Again, I don't think a a high score, but I was shocked. I want to say when I saw the line initially, it was around eight or nine. And whenever I see that, I always (laughs) say, you know, what do they know in the desert that I don't know? And even six and a half seems really high for a game like this for two teams that don't look like they have a ton offensively working in their favor and two programs that are known historically to be very good defensively. So I'm with you on that. I think, you know, total wise, we're looking in that low forties for a score. And, and I'm with you. I think Iowa finally wins one of those close games. I just don't see them losing at home again, you know, two times in a row. So I'm going with Iowa 22, Michigan State 18. Um, and, man, they need a win. And I need them to get a win. And we do. And just it, it'll make the week a lot better. And this is their chance. You know, and I, I think they're focused. They're ready to go. Nobody's given up on the season. And uh, I think we see some big play, whether it's a deep pass or a trick play, something sparks this offense and kind of, kind of gives them a little go yeah you know it's not fun for us to cover Iowa football when everything is doom and gloom uh, we we much rather have you know optimistic and talking about how great Iowa was in that game and how there's nothing to worry about and how we're we're looking forward to big matchups it, it, the slack call so we are the slack group chat that we are in for the Blackheart Gold Pants website was very depressing it was it was long conversations about just sort of how everything is going wrong with the fan base with Iowa football um you know everything that's around it everything that you could possibly think of and hopefully Iowa gets on back on track this week um it is an 11 o'clock game on ESPN is this a Beth Moens game I don't believe so I think we're uh maybe the same crew as last week I saw I think I think Orlovsky's on it because I believe we're going to get uh, a bunch of Trevor Lawrence updates. So they'll, they'll probably have him call in uh, at some point as well. <laughs> so I think that's where we're at for, for the crew that's on the game. So we'll see. I hope they talk Iowa football, um, but you never know. Well, yeah, Trevor Lawrence isn't playing this weekend. I don't know if you heard. So I, I imagine he'll probably be able to make a, you know, a phone call during the game and sort of give an interview over the phone. Um, my gosh, Dan Orlovsky really just let it all out for Clemson. Uh, I, I, probably seven times he brought it up at different points. <laughs> Towing that company, not company line. 
<laughs> With that said, everybody, we want to thank y'all for checking out the podcast for a third straight week. You know, Thad and I have had a lot of fun putting these together. And if you want to keep seeing these and keep wanting us to, you know, pump these out, you know, show some love, whether it's on Twitter, on blackheartgoldpants.com or wherever you're, um, you know, listening to this, we always appreciate it. And, you know, hopefully next week we're talking about a Michigan State win or a, not a Michigan State win, uh, an Iowa win. Um, but with that said, you know, Thad, is there anything else you would like to say before we clock out? Uh, enjoy the game. Uh, hopefully we have a lot more to cheer about. And uh, let us know what you think. Hit, hit the comments. And if there's something you want to see from us, let us know. Awesome. See you guys.